Hello, and welcome to Book Chatter, a monthly book club podcast presented by the Longmont Public Library. I'm Barb, your host for this episode, and with me today are Devin. Hello. Jana. Hi. And Josie. Hello. And we're here to discuss our latest pick, The City We Became, by N.K. Jemison. Book Chatter is our new online interactive book club. Each month, we'll spend 30 minutes to an hour chatting about a different book, and you can participate. Read the book, send us your thoughts, and then listen in as we share our perspectives. You can email us, leave comments on our Facebook page, send us a tweet, or leave us a voicemail. Please visit the library's website for more details on Book Chatter. And spoiler alert, today we'll be discussing the city we became in its entirety, which means there will be spoilers in this podcast. If you haven't finished reading it yet, you might want to come back to this episode when you've done so. Now for a little bit about the author and her work. Nora K. Jemison was born in Iowa City, Iowa, and grew up in New York City and Mobile, Alabama. She holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from Tulane University and a master's degree in education from the University of Maryland. For years, she worked as a psychological counselor while writing on the side. Then, in 2016, Jemison mounted an online fundraising campaign that enabled her to devote herself to writing full-time. That same year, Bustle magazine called her the sci-fi writer every woman needs to be reading. The City We Became is Jemison's 2020 urban fantasy novel, the first installment in her Great Cities trilogy. It was developed from her short story, The City Born Great, first published in 2016, and is Jemison's first novel since her triple Hugo Award-winning trilogy, the Broken Earth series. The City We Became is set in New York City, in a version of the world where cities become sentient through human avatars. But when the avatar of New York is gravely injured, battling an alien invader, falls into a supernatural coma, and disappears, five new avatars, one for each of the city's boroughs, must find each other, develop their powers, and unite to defeat their common enemy. So, okay, let's throw some stars at this book. I'll go first. I'll be honest right up front and say I'm not a big fan of sci-fi or fantasy, and I feel a little bit out of my wheelhouse commenting here, but despite that, I really enjoyed the book, and I'm already looking forward to the next installment in the trilogy. Jemison drew me in slowly but surely with her lyrical writing style, the intricate plot, the multi-layered exploration of good and evil here, and... As an aside, uh, my hubby and I spent a year living just outside New York City in the 1980s, and Jemison's feel for the gritty beauty of that city just shines through her writing. Plus, I really got a kick out of her choice of avatars to represent each of the five boroughs. She has those personalities absolutely spot on. I give it four stars. Devin, how about you? Well, like you, Barb, uh, fantasy and sci-fi genre are not my usual areas of interest. I was hesitant going into reading this, and I did struggle a bit. I do think it's important for everyone to at least attempt to read outside of their comfort level, and I definitely did with this book, but never again for me, I'm sorry. (laughs) Right from the beginning, I felt like I got dropped into the middle of a series. It was a little confusing. I kept feeling like I was missing the backstory or some other important information. 
Um, I also think I would have enjoyed it more if I had better knowledge of New York City and its boroughs. That was confusing for me and probably took me way too long to figure it out. I started out reading the print format, but I really struggled to pay attention, so I switched to the audiobook. It was wonderfully narrated and produced. I give it three stars because while I do acknowledge that it is well-written and entertaining, it did not hold my attention. Okay, Jana, how about you? I have to say I also listened to it on audio and I completely agree with Devin. It's very well done and there's also sound effects, so it really played well to the novel. I am not usually attracted to this genre, but I ended up really liking this deep dive into issues that are tearing our society apart today. The prescience of this novel's focus on white supremacy as it came out in March of 2020 before the summer of the Black Lives Matter protests and this January's riots at the Capitol is stunning to me, not to mention the viral nature of the enemy in this book during a global pandemic. She didn't plan for that one, by the way, but it's an interesting coincidence. Uh, since this is the beginning of a trilogy, I can't fault it too much for not having fully developed all the characters. I am interested to see how those characters continue to develop in the novels to come. I like that this novel is both entertaining and offers a lot of depth. It's sprinkled with literary, cultural, and historical references. I give it four stars. And Josie? Unlike the rest of you, I am a big fan of fantasy and science fiction, and I read a lot of it. And I'm also a big fan of N.K. Jemisin's other novels. Um, one of the things that I really love about her work and her writing is her ability to create very intricate and interesting and unique worlds. She's really good at world building. And the city we became, of course, takes place in a real New York City. It's a different New York City, but it's, it's an actual place. So I feel like it's harder for her to flex that world building muscle in this book. Therefore, um, I didn't enjoy it as much as I have her other works or as much as I expected to. But I feel that the message uh, was very important and timely, like Jenna said. So I'm going to give it three and a half stars. Very good. Okay, let's jump into the discussion. First question. There are many different themes that appear in this book, but racism is front and center. How is racism demonstrated in the city we became? Josie, can you open up the discussion? Sure. Thanks, Barb. To me, racism, uh, it causes division. It divides people into categories like good or bad, deserving or undeserving, acceptable or unacceptable, advantaged or disadvantaged, uh, based on ethnicity and skin color. And I think that in the case of Jemison's book, racism is the virus that the enemy is unleashing on New York uh, in order to create division and to weaken the city. So those places that respected diversity, like Queens's apartment building, she talks about there being people of many different cultures in the building, and they all share their cultures um, and their food and their music and their dance, and it's all respected. And that makes the building very strong, uh, and it stands up against the, the virus. However, with Aislinn, Aislinn, <laughs> uh, in Staten Island, the division is the norm, where people I don't know and people who are different from me are dangerous and they're fearful. So those places are more susceptible to this virus of racism. So I think the biggest message that I take from this novel is that racism 
creates division, and division makes us weaker, while diversity and respect for diversity makes us stronger. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Josie. And just to talk a little bit more about the basis for the racism, Jemison writes about how racism takes root and how racism grows, which I thought was very interesting. She writes about Aislinn as being programmed basically from birth to be a racist. Um, that's coming from her social milieu on uh, Staten Island. So she writes that Iceland's life has programmed her to associate evil with specific, easily definable things, dark skin, ugly people with scars or an eye patch, or wheelchairs, men. The woman in white is the visual opposite of everything Iceland has been taught to fear. And this really reminded me of Toni Morrison's book of over a 50 years ago, The Bluest Eye, in which there is such a correlation between goodness and beauty and the blue-eyed, white-skinned baby doll or performer like Shirley Temple, which is that that society's ideal of beauty. And I think that Jemison is showing us that we're still kind of stuck there. Um, and that's why this villain, the woman in white, is portrayed as this white woman with white hair and white skin. She's, she's really taking us back to the, the fact that we're still struggling with that as a society. And, and then um, to move on from that, um, bringing in a really modern twist, the internet as a breeding ground for that racism. So how does it grow? Um, she has a chapter about the alt artistes who um, try to get their painting into this gallery in the Bronx, and it is rejected based on their policies for the kind of art they accept. And so what do they do? Well, they post this viral video on the internet, and they are drumming up a lot of support. And so she, Jemison writes, all the people who really are a threat to the country, somehow they've been convinced to do its dirty work more or less for free, which I thought was very telling with today's society and culture and the debate that we're having today about our social media companies censoring some folks that may be promoting uh, hate speech or disinformation. Um, she writes that the more inflammatory they are, the more people watch them and the more money they make. Yes, I agree. Um, I definitely saw numerous racial and social issues in this book. And there is definitely a well-deserved shadow cast on the Aislinn's character, um, which could be from um, maybe the author's point of view, and unintentional or not, a form of racism. She is portrayed as a weak reliant on her racist father. She knows she's disliked, and she seems to fill the author's perception of a typical white girl, um, albeit well-deserved, um, but, you know, that's stereotypical, um, uh, you know, these days of the white character being the racist, um, and she was in this book. Uh, her other characters do talk about the racism that they endure, which definitely added to the story's authenticity. So the, the shadow that, that Devin is alluding to that, that ends up kind of hanging over Staten Island um, at the end of the novel is really a white supremacist shadow and a sexist shadow too. And while Aislinn uh, fought being raped by the white supremacist character Connell, who befriends her father, um, she has started to realize how sexism has ruined her mother's life. So she's, she's kind of coming into some kind of realization about the sexism surrounding her and how it's negatively impacted her life. But it feels like she hasn't completely awoken to how she is oppressed as a woman. Um, and so she doesn't identify with other oppressed groups of the avatars. And um, 
as I think someone else pointed out earlier, she is the only white avatar. And I think there's, you know, just a lot to unpack there with her character and how she will uh, move on in the novels to come and, and try to, like, overcome this, this cloud over her island. Yeah, she was, she was an oppressor, but she was also a victim. And, you know, you don't really find that a whole lot with the other avatars. Right, right. And I did think that it was super interesting how with her mom, she really wanted to go to Juilliard. She was a super talented concert pianist, but she stayed home with Iceland and she, um, you know, suffered from the father's kind of neglect and, and, and his oppression um, of, you know, his view of what a woman should be and staying home and not being able to fulfill her dreams. And she turns to gin and she, she basically becomes an alcoholic and Iceland sees all of that happening I think that there's there's a lot of sexism that Jemison is grappling with here. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, in an interview, I read uh, N.K. Jemison also spoke of um, another influence on the city we became. That one being the recent controversy over the World Fantasy Award. It's a writing award, which, if you've never seen it, is actually a bust of the author H.P. Lovecraft. And while Lovecraft is acknowledged as a father of the sci-fi fantasy genre. Uh, we also know that he was a pathological racist who uh, was disgusted by New York City's signature mix of ethnicities, that it was a city where people from all walks of life would rub shoulders on a daily basis. And in The City We Became, Jemison, I say, is calling out Lovecraft for his extreme racist views and attitudes. And, and she's also calling out the sci-fi fantasy community, I believe, as well, to uh, examine their own views, their own potential uh, prejudices in her work. Absolutely, Barb. Um, I think this book is, is kind of a rebuke of sorts to Lovecraft. Um, there are loads and loads of references throughout the book to him and his writing, um, but there are two that really stood out to me. The first is the alt artist that Janet was talking about and their painting, and they've titled it Dangerous Mental Machines. And I thought that title seemed strange. So I Googled it, and apparently it's a reference to a letter that Lovecraft wrote to a friend. And here's, here's the, the passage. I'll quote it. Quote, in this case, we have to deal not with childlike half-gorillas, but with yellow, soulless enemies whose repulsive carcasses house dangerous mental machines warped culturelessly in the single direction of material gain at any cost. End quote. So yeah, that's, that's pretty hardcore racist. Uh, and the second uh, reference is Aislinn, uh, you know, she talks about having read a short story, The Horror of Red Hook, that Lovecraft wrote. You can you can read this if you'd like, if you want to take the time to read it. It's it's probably oh, five pages. And the basic themes are that uh, Red Hook, New York, it was full of immigrants that were filthy and stupid and morally corrupt. And he puts a quote in there, the blasphemies of a hundred dialects assailed the sky. And Lovecraft in this story uses words like slant-eyed dregs that Ellis Island didn't even want and swarthy and noxious and spreading and mongrel, all these awful, awful words, and that these people were literally worshiping the devil and that they were sacrificing children. And he did make a point that they were sacrificing blue-eyed white children. 
Um, so that's anti-Semitic too. Uh, and that this place was basically um, a portal to hell. And instead, um, in this book, Jemison is saying that, no, different ethnicities and different kinds of people are not a bad thing. They don't make New York hellish, but they make it strong and unique. And they are not a danger. They are an asset. So I think in many ways, she is giving Lovecraft and his racism, you know, the big old middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And I, I thought it was telling, too, that uh, when Jemison decided to name the woman in white, there's a point in the story in which she reveals her identity. And it turns out that uh, she is apparently an avatar for a city within Lovecraft's mythology. Uh, there. Yeah, there's a line in The Call of Cthulhu, story that Lovecraft published in 1928, that goes like this. In his house at Rielia, dead Cthulhu waits, dreaming. And the woman in white reveals, yes, that's my name, Rielia. Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And I googled that too and couldn't find anybody who knew how to pronounce it. So I'll butcher it my own way. But it is telling that when Jemison decides to name the the personification of evil in the story. She chooses the name of a city within the Lovecraft mythos. Okay, question number two. Three out of four of us have just admitted we don't read much fantasy. Shame, <laughs> but, shame. I know, but then we do know there, there's a reason to read this genre. Why is it valuable? Um, I, I'd say first off, sci-fi fantasy is good because it challenges the reader's assumptions. Uh, quite frequently, it drops you immediately into unfamiliar territory and expects you to work out where you are. Uh, it presents concepts like parallel universes, quantum theory, and so on that can be difficult to grasp. This is not light and breezy reading. And uh, furthermore, it has sometimes been labeled nerdy. So if you don't like that label, you've got a problem. But um, they're also valuable for exploring societal issues, just as Jemison does here in The City We Became, that that otherworldly setting can give readers perhaps some distance, uh, a little bit of perspective, a chance to wrestle with viewpoints that are different from their own. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I'm not a sci-fi fan, but I know that I am in the minority with that. I know that a lot of readers enjoy fiction and sci-fi with underlying themes which trigger philosophical thought and conversation, and this title definitely accomplishes that, so there's nothing nerdy about that, folks. Uh, the reader can't really help but notice all the examples of and reference to contemporary issues. It was a good choice because it may encourage people to think about difficult topics where they otherwise might not. I am curious about how our readers feel about this approach. For me personally, I don't shy away from difficult topics. I prefer, though, to read fiction to be based in reality. So no white tendrils, no aliens, no other worlds. Um, and I also want it to be an escape from my reality. So I want true things and true people doing real life things, but not anything that, you know, relates to me. I don't really want to think about difficult things when reading fiction, so I prefer nonfiction for when I do one. I think that that just shows how clever Jemison is as a writer and a thinker, and that, I mean, for other people like myself, I, I kind of like things wrapped up in fiction to learn about them, 
And so I think she's done a, a great job at engaging readers while also getting an important message across. Absolutely. I think fantasy and sci-fi for me, it can be kind of sneaky. You know, it can sneak in. Um, and it's always usually from the perspective of the underdog and you really root for them. And then you realize, hey, this stuff isn't just happening in this fictional world or this alien civilization. This is happening in my world, too. That's that's kind of why I like it. Yeah. It was eerie how a lot of the situations in this title you could see yes. playing on your TV screen <laughs> and on social media. It was disturbing. Well, this one wasn't even, I mean, this isn't even, it's urban fantasy. It's, and it's not the classic I don't want you to not read N.K. Jemisin based on this one because of this book, Devin, <laughs> because it's very different from her other writing. Um, yeah, give it a chance. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, we'll take a very brief break here and be back shortly to dive deeper into N.K. Jemisin's The City We Became. Book Chatter podcast is funded by the friends of the Longmont Library. Hi there, Book Chatter listeners. If you have a Longmont Public Library card, I want to tell you about a new service we have. It's called Bluebird. Bluebird is an app designed specifically for mobile devices. Bluebird teaches 163 world languages. Each lesson has studio quality audio, time-coded subtitles, scored quizzes, five playback speeds, and more. Library users get full, premium access to all Bluebird content and functionality. Download the app from the App Store or from Google Play to get started on your learning journey. You can find full details and instructions on the library's website. Now, back to Book Chatter. And we're back. Next question. Is there a superhero aspect to the avatars in The City We Became? In what ways are they like superheroes? And in what ways do they subvert the superhero archetype? Now, I'd say uh, The City We Became is an origin story for these avatars. Um... You could take, for example, Manny, who steps off the train in the city, and he literally does not know who he is. And so part of his journey is to you know, dig around in his pockets, pull out his phone. Who am I? Where am I going? So this is an origin story. This is um, a hero trying to find out uh, who he is, uh, what his superpowers are how to wield them. And it's the same for the other uh, avatars as well. They, they also have to find each other, make a connection, pool their resources, and fight a common enemy that's bent on destroying them and the city. Uh, in an interview I read, Jemison cites the Power Rangers as an influence on this work, which is pretty hysterical. But, you know, in case you don't know, uh, the Power Rangers are a very popular uh, animated series for kids where a young team of superheroes combine forces to form a Megazord whenever they're battling their enemies. But the difference here is Jemison chooses a more diverse team in age and ethnicity so that her avatars more accurately reflect the characters of New York City's five boroughs. Are they kind of like the Care Bears, you know, like... <laughs> they all have their their own little power, you know, sunshine bear or whatever. But when they do the Care Bear stare, it like comes together to make this force. It is a super, super power force. <laughs> um, um, Jemison also says the, that a book by W.E.B. Du Bois was another influence on this book. Souls of Black Folk 
by Du Bois and his concept there of double consciousness. That's uh, his term for the experience that uh, African-Americans have living in a racist society. But Jemison twists it a little bit and makes it a literal kind of double consciousness. Uh, her avatar's superpowers include the ability to see two realities at once, one where they're regular people and one where they are living cities. And she also... Uh, gives her uh, avatars some very unusual, interesting superpowers. For example, Brooklyn uh, has uh, the superpower by which she battles the enemy with rap poetry. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that I also, awesome. I also like how Manny becomes uh, King Kong. <laughs> For a moment, yeah. Another way I think that uh, Jemison flips the script, um, and I think Jana kind of alluded to this at the beginning, um, is her use of color. So if you think of traditional Western literature and folklore, white equals good and pure and black equals bad and dirty. Um, you know, think of Disney villains. They're usually wearing dark clothes and they live in a dark place. Or you see it in the Westerns. Uh, the bad guy rides a black horse and wears a black hat. And the good guy has a white hat and a white steed. And it's even become sort of a, a saying, you know, wear the white hat so you do good. My husband and I, are we're starting to watch Westworld, um, the TV series. And, and they use the colors in this show. When they first get to, to the park, um, they can choose if they want to wear the white hat or the black hat. And one of the characters who's really quite evil, he's the man in black. And he wears all black and, and rides a black horse. So it's, it's still with us. And in the city we became... The enemy, uh, the woman in white, you know, she's blindingly white in her skin and her clothes and her hair and everything. And these tendrils that infect everyone are white. And these huge towers are white. And, you know, I don't know if this was intentional, but it's a really powerful visual, I think. And also the one white avatar, Staten Island, she's, she's not the hero in this story. She's not the villain, but she's the weak one. She's not the good one. I guess the only man in black that's not evil is Johnny Cash, right? There you go. It's <laughs> before his time. Uh, I, I totally agree with you, Josie. She, she does flip the script on good versus bad using the traditional colors. Um, sort of reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia and the White Witch. That is another example. Um, there's definitely a superhero's feeling to her characters. I think she kind of is traditional in that way. Um, the way she introduced them to the reader and to each other um, was not unlike the popular TV series Heroes, which I really enjoyed. Um, they are like traditional superheroes in that they aren't really aware of their powers in the beginning. And the way that they become more powerful as they become more informed and join forces with each other to battle evil. Um, I did sort of feel like the author was checking all the boxes to include every demographic and every viable social interaction, you know, the racist woman recording on her phone and calling the cops, um, Aislinn's father profiling immigrants as being bad. Um, these things have all been in the news lately for the last few years, longer than that. Um, so I don't know if you could perceive that as inclusive or like sort of low effort or pandering. Um, I don't know. I just kind of felt like I was, re as I was reading through the first few chapters, I was like, yep, check, yep check. So, I don't know. It it turned me off slightly. Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of agree with you, Devin, that sometimes it came off as maybe like a little bit heavy-handed. Um, but on the other hand, um, the novel really does flow and kind of takes off. And 
I think that you'll lose yourself in the plot if you let yourself go with it where she's taking you. And, you know, she is telling a story, I think, as a black woman. And I did listen to an interview with her where she talked about growing up as a black girl and and liking this genre, liking science fiction and liking fantasy and not really seeing herself represented in that genre. There weren't really many other authors of color at the time, nor were they telling the stories that she could, you know, completely see herself in. Um, So I really admire that she is taking this on, I think. But I do want to talk a little bit about um, the idea of the cities as a social construct and not just a physical construct, because so often we think about cities as places, as buildings and land. But here we are being asked to think about cities as being birthed, as becoming alive, as having a spirit. Jemison references some religious ideas like atavism, and there is a character who is the auntie of Pashmini, who is uh, the queen's avatar, and her name is Ashwara, and she says, there are many in my country who believe in lots of gods, lots of avatars, possibly hundreds. Some are patrons of cities. You could call them city gods. And I really thought that was lovely because uh, Jemison is talking about the spirit that you sense when you visit a city that has been born, um, so to speak, because she feels that cities come into their own and they they become alive and they they take on this spirit when they reach a certain cultural point, I think. And I think that we can all relate to that when we have been in these places and we go there and maybe you really love it and, and maybe you maybe you don't for some reason, but there's definitely a spirit there. There's definitely a feeling to that place. And I love that she's she's portraying that through through this novel and through the avatars. Yes. Uh, in the city we became, New York City is in danger from an enemy. What are the dangers that plague New York City and cities in general? Jana, would you like to expand on that question? Yeah, there are a lot of dangers, Barb. Um, from the very beginning, Jemison is referencing colonization and land ownership, both in its historical context and from the present alien threat. So the first uh, confrontation with the woman in white takes place at Shirakapak, which is the site of what Jemison calls the first real estate swindle of the soon-to-be New York. And what she's referencing there is a site where the Dutch supposedly purchased Manhattan from the Lenape tribe of Native Americans. Um, But she calls it a stolen value that Manhattan was built on not only land valuation, but stolen value. And the reason for that was that uh, Lenape had a different idea of land ownership um, than the Dutch did. And so when you have these different cultures and these different peoples coming together, there is more to this story. You should go and read it. Um, It's a little bit complex to get into here, but it's just the idea of these different cultures and um, having different ideas of land ownership and value. And when Jemison was researching for this novel, she found out that Manhattan was literally built on blood and trash. And so um, Manhattan wasn't big enough for the folks at the time. They wanted to expand the island. So what did they do? Well, they put uh, trash. They basically made a landfill to extend the island. And who did they uh, employ to do that dirty work? Well, it was slaves and it was uh, other poor folks, black Irish folks. And what happened when they were worked to death 
was that they fell into the trash and they, they weren't given a proper burial. They were paved over, so to speak, to make room for these glittering skyscrapers that are Manhattan today. So when you think about Manhattan, you can think about how this power and this wealth and the, the allure um, are covering up the trash and the, and the blood that made room for that to be. Um, and there's you know this very powerful quote that she writes about capitalism, which was born on that site. I am Manhattan. Every murderer, every slave broker, every slumlord who shut off the heat and froze children to death, every stockbroker who got rich off war and suffering. That is the idea of Manhattan, and that that's pretty dark. And that avatar, you know, he does have, he's funny and he's handsome and he's well-defined muscles. <laughs> and the, the main avatar of New York has a crush on Manhattan, of course. Um, but, you know, Manhattan has this dark underbelly to him. Wow. Well, I'm crossing Manhattan off my list. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Jana. Gives, gives you pause. <laughs> and, you know, and sorry, there's one more issue that I'm just going to segue into here, which is that of uh, gentrification, um, in addition to the exploitation that Manhattan represents. The other avatar, one of the other avatars, Brooklyn, is, is really grappling with the idea of gentrification. She believes that only people who actually love New York versus those only occupying it and exploiting it should dictate what it is and becomes. So I, I know, Barb, you had something to say about gentrification as well. Oh, yeah. And uh, this is another influence that Jemison cites on her thought about cities in general and specifically New York City. Uh, the book by Jane Jacobs, Death and Life of American Cities, was a huge influence. And in that book, Jane Jacobs argues for dense, diverse urban neighborhoods, the very kind that, that Jemison describes here as being a strength. Jemison calls Jane Jacobs the anti-Robert Moses, and, and she's referring to uh, Robert Moses, who pushed for the destruction of such neighborhoods. He uh, labeled them slums, uh, and saw urban renewal as a tool uh, to uh, basically remove people he didn't like uh, or to keep different ethnic groups from mixing together in a city like New York. And uh, I believe somewhere in the book, uh, someone mentions the fact that Central Park has kind of a dark story as well, not just the island, Manhattan. Seneca Village was an Irish American, uh, sorry, Irish and African American community in the heart of the city, uh, where obviously two ethnic groups got to rub shoulders every day, and uh, uh, that just couldn't be. And therefore, that particular neighborhood was demolished to create Central Park, which um, I would say most visitors, a lot of people who live in the city, think of Central Park as this gem, this you know, set of lungs for the city. It's a beautiful respite from all the chaos around it. Uh, and yet there's this dark past about it that perhaps people don't realize. I imagine Robert Moses um, probably wouldn't have liked Red Hook either. Oh, probably not. <laughs> Tear it down. <laughs> Our next question. This title is the first of a trilogy. Do you think the ending lands on a hopeful or fearful note? And what do you think will happen in future books of the trilogy? I've kind of got a split opinion about this. I say it's hopeful in that four out of the five avatars 
successfully band together to rouse the sixth avatar, and they use their combined powers to defeat their common enemy. That's great. Uh, on the other hand, it, it ends on a fearful note because uh, Staten Island is still under a shadow. And uh, from all that I could tell at the end of the book, uh, Iceland, the avatar for Staten Island, is still definitely aligned with the enemy. Uh, Jemison uh, herself is a fan of epic trilogies. She cites Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Ursula Gwynn's Wizard of Earthsea, which is actually a double trilogy, as a huge influence on her writing. And the trilogy format does provide a large story arc. It gives you plenty of time as an author to develop themes uh, that you introduce in the uh, initial volume, as in here. It gives you time to dig into your characters' personalities and so on. And uh, The City We Became is the first of the Great Cities trilogy. So I'm expecting to see other cities being birthed with help from New York City's Avatar team. I bet you it's Chicago. What do you think? Ooh, yes. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's oh. Denver. I don't think Denver's <laughs> big enough. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, Barb. It, it, it's hopeful and fearful. Um, it kind of was an abrupt drop-off, which um, makes sense because it's going to mm-hmm. be a trilogy. Uh, and I don't know what's going to happen in the future books. I don't plan on reading them. You guys can let me know. <laughs> we will. <laughs> Sorry. I really love that you know, she continues to just grapple with these issues. Um, It's the start of a trilogy, so there isn't unity in the avatars. Um, I was kind of hoping for that, but there there wasn't. But I think that that's more truthful, and it's really kind of like the place that we're at right now in our country, that it's a work in progress. I I admire her for being brave, brave enough to confront these issues and imagine something better. And that's the power of fantasy, right? I love that. And I I just want to read this quote from her. Imagining a world creates it if it isn't already there. Yes. Well said. Well, thank you, Devin, Jenna, and Josie for a great discussion of N.K. Jemison's The City We Became. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us today. For March's Book Chatter episode, we've chosen She Come By It Natural, Dolly Parton, and The Women Who Lived Her Songs by Sarah Smarsh. Print and audio copies are available for checkout at the library. Ebook and e-audiobook versions can be borrowed online from the Front Range Downloadable Library's website. So, read the book, then join our conversation. Submit your comments and questions online by email or voicemail. You'll find details on how to do this in our program notes. And if you like what we're doing, please subscribe to Book Chatter. See you in March for our next episode of Book Chatter, the book club for busy people. Bye-bye.